fact, it's going to be hard, no one's going to understand it, and it's going to require you to challenge yourselves in a lot of different ways. But at the end, you'll make more money than you ever had before, and you'll have freedom of time. Welcome to Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vincent. And on this show, I talk to professionals in all kinds of different areas and get down to the root of how they've been so successful in their industry so far. Today, I have a guest that I've had on a couple times before, but he's here to talk about everything else that's been going on since he was last on. Devin Roberts, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be back, Brody. I'm happy to have you back. We've got, again, a lot to get into today, mm -hmm. as always. Um, you've had a lot of pretty big changes in your career in really positive ways. So. For sure. Let's start out by just giving a quick overview of your background. Cool. So yeah, just a little context to me and what I do exactly. I'm in the renewable energy field, specifically in solar sales. So my job is to go out and evaluate homes and people's electricity situation and try to provide them solar panels that provide their electricity to them for cheaper, cleaner, and get them off the power grid. I've recently moved from doing specifically sales in solar, where I was the one going to people's houses and doing these evaluations, to actually training up teams and managing territories to help them do it on a larger scale. So that's allowed me to, you know, step into a whole new field, learn a lot more about maybe the the upper half of some of the businesses and what it's like to um, start one myself in this field. And I thought it was a good chance to come on here and talk to you about it. Absolutely. I would say the kind of common denominator here in what we're going to be getting into is the transition. We've right. had a transition in a lot of different ways here. Um, you're with a new company now and you're actually kind of kind of in the ground floor of the founder ship of this company. So one thing we talked about off air that I really wanted to cover is just what that transition is like, how it's been for you, some of the the struggles and the successes of it, advantages and disadvantages of it, and just how that transition looks. I think that could be helpful to anyone who might be thinking that they've been in a company and established a lot of credibility, a lot of knowledge, a lot of skill but they would like to maybe start their own business or go off and go into a new position at a new company that suits them better, gives them a higher ceiling. So talk a little bit about what brought you there and how that experience has been so far. No, absolutely. So a little bit about what brought me there um, as far as anything else. In my, in my last company, I was specifically moving into a training role. The role was um, training enablement manager, which essentially we would have teams in different territories in Florida that we would train up and send out to start doing sales. And this was awesome, but the model that my old company had had everyone in very cookie-cutter regimented roles. Everyone was running usually 10 to 12 hours a day, um, very, very large schedules. Um, they would have sometimes running hours or two hours away from their homes. It was just a, a very a very school of hard knocks kind of sales process that they expected everyone to follow. One of the biggest advantages that I found in making a transition out of that world has been the ability to create create job roles for people that are more conducive to lifestyles that are realistic. So people with families or with kids or that go to school or that in other positions in life that can't commit 10 and 12 hours a day to their job are still able to perform in the solar field under this transition. So that's one of the coolest things that I've seen as far as what I've been able to provide. But again, I really do want to get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of what that transition has kind of looked like. 
Um, as far there's been a lot of, I don't want to say wait time exactly, maybe lag time is the right way to say it, of setting up websites and platforms and LLCs and logos and things of that nature. And conducive to what we've done, we've done very quickly. We've spent you know, less than two months getting a lot of our, our basics established and um, becoming a brand that can be recognizable throughout Florida. Um, but watching that process and seeing it, um, how, how much it slows down myself specifically and my ability to sell was something that was immediately noticeable, how I kind of had to live this duality now where I was still doing sales and training, but I also had to help build the business and create the backbone that actually made it a business in the first place, right? So learning learning that has been a big part of the transition, I think, for me as much as anything. Yeah, just really moving, having to step back a little bit and focus on building the business. And you were very much the, you're an operator in the business before, now you are an owner. Right, partially. exactly. You have a little bit of equity here as well, I think. A um, little bit of piece of it. That's the idea. And so it's it's all about building a bigger thing, a bigger piece of pie, right? Right, and that, and also just creating something where people can kind of um, be, in, be in business for themselves, but not by themselves, right? That's kind of the model behind what we're doing. We try to believe in an infinite mindset, where especially when it comes to renewables, not only can everyone go solar for the most part, everyone can benefit from this green renewable project, but every... Um, person can expand their their own business within our Infinite Sun Solar, within our company, to whatever they want it to be. So there'll be people who come on and want to do um, solar sales and only want to, you know, maybe make one or two a month. They want to talk to their, their networks, the people they know in their circles, and sell one or two deals a month, and that be them. And they're perfectly happy with that, and that creates a revenue stream for them and allows them to get into renewables. And then there are people who want to do like what I was doing before, where they're putting in 10 and 12 hours a day, and it's not all they do, and it's nonstop, and make you know a lot more money in that respect. But I think we've been able to create different business models where people can be in an environment that feels built for themselves and by themselves instead of one that feels like they're forced into a kind of trying to force a a round object into a square hole kind of thing. Right. So that gets into really what we wanted to cover with job design and role design. Mm -hmm. What, what is the most kind of persistent thought that you have around that? And what do you, what do you kind of keep coming back to when you think about the way that you need to structure these jobs and these roles. And you know, this is really interesting to talk about because I would say my philosophy is still a little bit um, out on this one exactly, where I believe that there is kind of a duality to this, where I believe that a role should be designed in a way that is conducive um, to everyone's well-being, where everyone is allowed to kind of do it the way they want in a hybrid model kind of way. I don't mind if people work from home. I don't mind if they don't come into the office. I don't mind if they choose the hours they put in, take off the time that they need, because I think that's conducive of a healthy lifestyle. But I also believe that the only people that succeed under that model are extremely self-motivated and disciplined people. What we call it earlier, the, the locust of control. Yeah, I was talking about how a big thing that you have to look for, and I, this is something I learned, I think we'll get into more of these types of things throughout our conversation, but this is something I learned in my management class for my MBA this semester, is that one of the biggest things that you should look for in someone that you're hiring is what's called an internal locus of control versus an external locus of control. And that simply means that the person attributes a lot of outcomes that they deal with to internal things. So if they have an outcome, for example, getting a promotion on the good side or getting fired on the bad side, if they have an internal locus of control, 
then if they got fired, they say, wow, I got myself fired. I screwed up. Mm-hmm. If they've got an external locus of control, they say, well, I mean, it was raining. I got to work late because of that. There was traffic and my roommate held me up and this, 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 and this external factor that are all responsible for their outcome that they dealt with. So it's about where they place responsibility in a lot of ways. Yeah, really where they place responsibility. So someone with an internal locus of control places the responsibility on themselves for mm-hmm. things. So that means that they're going to be self-driven and self-critical too. They're going to be self-critical and they're going to hold themselves to the standard that you want them to be held to rather than you having to babysit them all the time. And I find those people work very well under this model that we're trying to build because then they can create their own schedules. They can work as hard as they want and they can take time off in their own times. This gives a uh, version of freedom to work life that is usually very stringent. I think people enjoy that. The problem is if you have an external locus of control, if you're blaming other factors for things that go wrong, this is a, it's, it's a zero-sum game. It's you lose much more than you win no matter how good you are. You are going to make more calls than people answer and you are going to sit in more houses than people go solar. And that's just always been the case for any sales job that you're in. So people have to learn not only to to like look at themselves and be like, okay, what could I have improved? What have I have done different? But also not to let it affect their internal monologue and kind of how they speak to themselves, how they shoot themselves. Okay, I, I need to do something different. I could have done this better, but I'm still waking up tomorrow with the exact same energy. I'm alive, I'm awake, and I feel great and kind of waking up with that attitude every day. I think if you have a combination of that, that internal locus of control and then that unbridled positive attitude, the formula that those two combine and make winds up creating massive success in everyone who joins the sales industry. Here's a really deep question. Do you think that internal locus of control that we're talking about is something that you're born with or do you think it's developed? Oh, it's developed. You've known me for way too long to say that. Oh my gosh, my (laughs) internal locus of control, me and Brody have been close since we were, you know, teenagers at the at the latest. And I absolutely was not born with an internal locus of control. I was not good in school. I was not disciplined. I did not put the hours in where I know some people who may have had, you know, kind of naturally were better that I've seen people who are born with it, or maybe isn't still with it early. But I, I mean, my parents tried hard to instill it in me and I fought it desperately. It wasn't until I was an adult and I kind of made a conscious decision to take control that I was able to do it. So I absolutely do not think I think people can be born with it. I think more often than not, you're not. I think people are born more or less predisposed to it. For sure. And the development is where the real meat of it comes in. Because right. I would say the same thing about myself. I, As a kid, I didn't have an internal locus of control. I would get pissed off about something and blame anything but myself. And now I just I look at it differently. I try to be self-critical on things. And the thing is, if if you're saying people are born with it, then you're also saying that people that don't have it, it's not a controllable factor. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely have seen it be a controllable factor. Just throughout my own sales career, if nothing else, there are people who like, like uh, without using names, uh, a few months ago, I had a colleague in a different company who wound up um, um, ending a relationship. He uh, he had gone out of a relationship and the manager at the time had kind of looked at him and said, we are going to take you off sales for a few weeks. And he was really, really like hurt by this. 
because he thought he was being punished for being upset about his relationship ending, right? But the manager actually was really smart. Instead of letting him get, like, 50 failed attempts while he was, like, distraught over this, he took him off for a few weeks, let him get his head back, let him get his life kind of back under him a little bit and send him out again. And then that next month, once he had had a month to process his breakup, he was killing it again. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, – I think it's a lot of, He like, probably realized that if he kept him in the trenches during that time and his success rate went down, that would just – that would make everything that he was feeling probably even worse. He'd probably feel like, damn, nothing's working here. Like, my, I'm not exactly. doing well in my job. I'm not doing well in my personal life. So it's not always consistent, right? So something bad happened in his life and his internal locus of control went outside. He started blaming other things. He started affecting other aspects of his life. And it just took time for him to get back to that. So I don't think it's so consistent as to say some people have this, some people don't. It's a spectrum, right? Um, and different things happen that affect people differently. But... I find that, especially in sales, people who have an immutable version of that, who no matter what goes wrong, no matter what happens, they're going to be able to be self-critical, be calm, and change things within themselves to affect their outcome, just just make absolutely so much success um, in this kind of career. Absolutely. Another thing I wanted to talk about before we get off the subject of job design Mm -hmm. is something else we were talking about off air. I was kind of filling you in on this concept I learned about recently because we were just bouncing around some ideas about job and role design since it's something you're getting more and more involved in. And I thought this was a really interesting theory to share with you. Um, This concept of the motivating potential score, this is something I learned about this semester. Mm -hmm. So the motivating potential score is a score that can be assessed to any job or role and how it's designed. Right. So you've got basically five factors that go into it and you've got this equation. I might just overlay this um, over the the video on the screen, but you've got this equation with these five factors and they are task variety, task identity, task significance, autonomy, and feedback. And basically what you've got is the, the five of those factors combining to create a score that assesses how well designed the job or role is. Right. So your task variety simply just means like how many different types of skills you're going to need to be able to complete this job. Mm -hmm. So all of these different factors in this score, the more of it you have, the better design the job is to be motivating right. and to get you the best outcomes. So if you're thinking about designing a job or a role, you want to have a lot of different skills that are required to complete it. The example that we went over is if you think about like some of the least motivated people, they're in jobs where they're very repetitive. You're just doing the same thing over and over again, and there's really no skill variety to right. it. Right. So skill variety is the first one. Second one is task identity. And that means does the job involve completing like one little tiny piece of something that's just a like a tiny cog and like a giant wheel of something? Or is it part of a whole product? And the more that it's part of a whole product and touches more parts of it, I think this is what's so cool about being a business owner or being a founder is you're involved in the whole thing. Right that increases the motivation as well. Yeah, for sure. Another one is task significance. So that has to do with, does it have substantial and perceivable impact on the lives of other people? So the more that it, like in your case, you what you're doing 
because I think your job's a great example of something that creates a lot of motivation in your role. Mm-hmm. When you help these people change to solar, you're saving them a lot of money and putting them in kind of kind of putting them in the future way of doing things to right. a certain extent. So it actually has a pretty big impact on the lives of these clients. No, for sure. It absolutely does. Usually saves them hundreds and hundreds of dollars first year they sign up and then more on from there. Most of the time they're not signing up um, due to ignorance. We say in a way we're professional decision makers. We're there mm-hmm. to provide you with all the information and help you concisely make an effective decision. And again, we don't, I'll tell people a hundred times over if I do not think a solar system is beneficial to you and there are reasons it cannot be if you maybe you live out of country three-fourths of the year let's say and you're only here a fourth of the year then the solar system generally isn't going to be beneficial to you i won't put one on your house because then i can go into every single other home look at people and say hey i am absolutely positive this is going to be good for you i would not sell you it if it wasn't i wouldn't be pitching it to you if it wasn't going to be something that saves you money and benefits to you i think that's extremely important in any role that's what's allowed me to be so passionate about what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think being able in the design of the jobs and roles that you're making, the more that you can bring that and tie that back, how much it is playing into these people's lives. I think that's going to go into the motivation of the people in the roles a lot. Agreed. For sure. So the first part of that equation is kind of those three things I described over three. So it's the average of those three things. So Mm -hmm. if any of those things are zero, then they're kind of it's not a big deal because you can be high in the other two and it kind of averages out. Right. But you've got those three averaged out and then the other two things are autonomy. So how much freedom do you actually have to do the job your own way? Mm-hmm. And I think my kind of theory behind that is it goes into like trust. If your manager trusts you a lot and knows that you're competent and capable of your job, that just goes into motivation a lot more. You also know that you have a lot of control over the way the job is done. Mm -hmm. So autonomy. And then the last one is just feedback. It's like how much direct feedback of how you're actually performing are you getting? Right. I think that's a hard balance sometimes to make that I found autonomy versus feedback because especially in our career, we're in a position where uh, uh, people working autonomy is extremely valuable in the sense that them being able to work from home and work on their own and work without direct instruction is not only make them happier, but it's more effective for our business. But at the same time, enough autonomy creates this, this, and a career like this creates a negative feedback loop where if they're not very careful and disciplined with their, their internal locus and their thoughts and the way they perceive things, they'll start start being slightly lazier, start seeing slightly more failures or start slowing up, showing up late to appointments or different little things like that. And if they're not kind of being constantly checked, and this goes for any company I've worked in in sales, if they're not being constantly checked to kind of get back to a standard, then they fall off quickly. So you need you need autonomy and feedback, but then there's also like this immutable one in the middle. And again, this isn't in job design. This is like someone who's working there. You have autonomy and feedback and then like the immutable that they're the actual employee needs to bring to the table is discipline. So right. I'll give you autonomy and I'll give you good feedback. What I need from you is discipline in the middle. So I find that's probably my single most important factor that I look at in a hire right now. It's not personality, it's not anything else, even though all those are extremely important in this role. It's discipline, discipline over time. So what are some signs, if you're in an interview and you're just talking to someone that could potentially be an employee, how do you spot that? What do you look for? What are some things that show you this person is disciplined for real? Uh, it's really about history at a point. So not necessarily like I'm very big on not being um, 
age specific with my hires, whether you're younger or older, I believe you can do job just as well as someone of a, of a different age. But history matters a lot. So if you've spent very little time in roles that require discipline, I have a hard time believing that this is going to be the role where you initially develop it, right? It requires a, a, a different level of discipline than I think any other role that I've ever been in or that I've seen most people be in does. So I don't think it's a place to develop discipline. It's a place for people to come who already have that discipline. I think people who have discipline have a very easy time of talking on to what they bring up first. And mm-hmm. they know they know how valuable it is. Hey, I've worked at, you know, I worked at this Fortune 500 company for X number of years doing this role that ter- that succeeded in this way. Um, discipline will deliver you a story like that that you can tell. What I look for, I, I guess I don't really look for discipline. I look for a lack of discipline, right? So constantly jumping jobs, long gaps in employment, never having a job that's, you know, not a very base level worker job, never one with any real responsibility. If you're in those positions, then I find a lot of times you're going to be, it's not like you can't, but you're going to be in a position where you're developing a whole different type of discipline than you've ever had before. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you can't necessarily do that. It's that going it's into- It's that you haven't done it yet. Right. And you're putting yeah. yourself in an unbelievably high pressure role in front of people who are already skeptical of you where your discipline and enthusiasm is going to determine your success day in and day out. And that's just like for for a personality like mine, if you're very outgoing and very positive and very talkative and very, you know, kind of take it on the shoulder, it's great for that type of personality. If you're the person who internalizes things, if you're the person who can't look at things objectively, if you're the person that blames external flat factors instead of improving on yourself, then it's a bad spot for you to learn discipline. Yeah. Makes a ton of sense. So when you're looking for that in the hiring process, it's kind of just, it's something you need to have thought through as the person applying, like, how have you structured your background? Are you really prepared for this thing? Right. And another big part of it that we talk about is what is your motivation behind doing it? So one of our, like, we, we always ask our, our new representatives to go through what we call the seven layer why, which is a, it's actually a really valuable piece of info that's worked for me and a great, and it's, you always ask yourself for any job you're doing or any career, anyone at home can do it with themselves, like in the exact moment, you always, whatever your very first answer was, right? You ask yourself, why are you doing your career? Why are you doing your job? And for most people, or at least when I ask myself, the you're, again, quickest answer is money, right? I want, I want money, so mm-hmm. period. And then you go through seven layers of asking yourself why to the whatever the answer is to the last question. So it's why do you want money? It's like, well, I want money. If you ask me, it's because I want to provide for my family and my pets and my home and everything else. Like really noble, right? And most people generally stop about there. That's mm-hmm. usually about how deep people get in their why. Then you go past that and you say, well, why do I want to provide for my family and people and things of that nature? And if it's me, you know, just giving a little bit of mine, it's, you know, well, my family and my dad and my mom were able to do that for me. And I feel that I want to continue their legacy and make it greater. So I have to be doing more for my people than they even did for me to continue that improvement. And then the question is, well, why do you want to improve in that way? Why is that specifically important to you? And that gets, you know, as you start getting deeper, you start realizing there are really psychological reasons behind what you want to do this. You know, if I get deeper, it becomes about um, proving something to people in my past and my parents and Mm. showing that with some of my um, chips on my shoulder and failures in my past, I can still be more successful than people that maybe haven't had those failures. And so that becomes important to me as I get lower into mine. But I find it's almost different for every single person. Of course. Um, And 
But you wouldn't believe how few people really understand what motivates them and why it motivates them. And I think we seven layers is a lot to dig into. Yeah, and you and you you'll find it gets longer. First one's I want to make money, and the seventh one winds up being you know I was a I was a disappointment in certain ways growing up, and so I want to prove something to other people, and you know provide a good life for my dog and it becomes this giant paragraph of things that are really important to you and then I can think about it in a different aspect okay it's not I'm not putting in 60 hours a week because I want money like I don't I don't that doesn't sit well on my soul I'm putting in 60 hours a week because I want to prove something to myself and others and provide for the people I care about that I can do and if you haven't like if you don't have a family and you don't have kids especially where that kind of kind of gets shoved in your life then you need to artificially sit with yourself and meditate on those questions. And we send people home with nothing but a night of home where we say, you know, you don't have to bring it in, you don't have to tell us, but we beg you, just go home, sit down and ask yourself these questions and write them down. I'll tell you, out of every single thing that we do for training, the biggest difference I see in people, the biggest change from like day two to day three or and the biggest difference between certain people and certain other people or whether they do this. When people wow. do it, they come in dressed different. They come in early. They come in thinking different and acting different than the people who've done it. And we'll ask in class, like, who did it? People who did are acting completely different than the people who've done it. It changes something in your mentality when you know actually why you're doing it at the deepest level. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so many people, there's definitely people that can be highly motivated by money, but there's, For sure. there is always something deeper than it and if you can actually put a physical not physical but if you can actually like identify that and know what it is exactly that you're driving towards it gives you so much reason more to drive towards it for sure i mean i'm i'm highly motivated by money anyone who don't don't get twisted like i i'm absolutely motivated by money i love making money i want a job that makes me a lot of money if you aren't making me a lot of money i'm probably not spending a ton of time with that Mm -hmm. um but with that being said i i love making money and i'm passionate about making money because i've realize the avenues it can provide me and my family. It has nothing to do with the money itself or the stuff that it can buy me. It's the avenues and the places and the people. The freedom. Right. And that that as well, exactly. So it's all those factors and that why I want those things becomes deeper. And everyone sitting here thinking on it themselves is thinking the same things. They think, well, I want freedom and I know why I want that. But you got to get as deep as you possibly can on that to be able to motivate yourself if you're having a motivational issue. You're sitting here and you're like, yeah, you know, all that makes sense, but I just don't have that discipline. Like, and I want it. I just don't know how to make myself get up and work for 10 hours a day. That's unbeknownst to me. It's because you don't know you don't have a reason to get up and work 10 hours a yeah. day. And I do. And it's just that simple. My reason's better than your reason. Having figured that out well for yourself, I think that's going to serve you well in your management because we were talking a little bit before also about just being able to, as a manager and as a trainer, being able to pull the levers of motivation with the people that you're training, that you're managing. What are some successes and failures that you've had in actually influencing motivation for people that are working for you? So I think I'll start, if we're going to do that, I'm going to start with the failures, if anything else. So like what I found in a lot of cases is that, and this is where I think most managers wind up failing in a position like me. And it's about setting realistic expectations, right? So when you're originally getting hired for a job, there's kind of two pieces to an interview. You're selling yourself, but then the job is also being sold back to you. So you're in a position where you're telling them what's good about you, but they're also trying to paint the job in the best light so that you want the position. And then you get into the position and there's 
you know, different things. Things are worse than you thought they were. Um, maybe it's more hours. Maybe it's more time. Maybe it's more difficult. Maybe it's more oversight and not as much autonomy or it's all these different things. And people come in thinking they're getting one thing, getting a number, and then getting disappointed, right? They get another and then they get disappointed. I, when I try to interview someone, I try to do almost the exact opposite where I describe the worst scenario of what's mm. going on. Look, you're coming to this job, it's going to be sales. You're going to be driving around most days, you're going to be doing um, a lot of cold calls, you're going to be getting a lot of no's and you're going to be a lot tired and it's going to be a lot of months of hard work before you make serious money. It's going to be the most difficult job you've ever had, it's going to be more challenging than whatever your previous position was, but if you stick in this for two months and you discipline and you stay with it, you'll be X number dollar earner after two or three months. You'll be a $10,000, $12,000, $13,000 a month earner mm -hmm. easily after the amount of time. For people who have made thirty dollars and $40,000 a year, I think that's a pretty good deal. Now, not everyone can take one or two months off and you know make less money and things of that nature. Of course, it's, it's not possible for everybody. But I try to set them up with these very low expectations of the job. That way they come in ready. And if, they're, if they were even close, if they were even on the border of like, you know, I'm not sure if I was doing it, then that'll make them quit. Yeah, if they're on the border already, you, your goal almost should be to convince them out of That's it. That's exactly what I'm doing. And you're under-promising, over-delivering is Thank the goal. God. So the goal is basically just to eliminate any of the people who are just obviously not going to be successful before they even get into the position. Because I don't want to put people in a position where they're making significantly less money for a few months trying to get into this and then just fail. Now, people get through and wind up getting in and not being able to make it, but it's not generally because of motivation. It's because of personality or they just don't like the job or something of that nature. It winds up being less often motivation. I think motivation is something that if you're good at hiring and you're good at interviewing, like we were talking about earlier, you're specifically finding the low motivation people in an interview. I think that's one of the the primary um, jobs an interview serves almost in a way. Even my my boss, who who was a mentor at me and my old company and came to this new company and started with me, I brought in five, six, seven, maybe eight people um, in our first class to do training. And he said he could tell their success levels in a lot of cases just by how they dressed, how they came looking to their original um meetings and how they came looking to the first day of training was like a big indicator to him of how successful they are. And I've seen that same thing looking down the, the pipe, people who would put in that extra level of effort always wound up being more successful in the long term. So I think I can determine a lot of that before I ever really get into the actual training of someone, whether they're going to be disciplined enough and motivated enough to, to be successful. Any key interview questions that come to mind that you always make sure to ask that help you determine that? Uh, I don't think there's necessarily a key question. Again, I think I think my interview method is a little different where I'm not like trying I find I find interviews become somewhat um, nerve wracking for certain type of people if you ask too many questions because they're fearful of not knowing the answer. Right. They're they're scared you're gonna ask something and they're gonna answer wrong. There's an answer you're looking for and they're going to answer wrong. Hmm. So more I tell people a story. I explain to them what the job is going to be, what the expectations are. I really lower how much I think they're going to enjoy it. And then I start telling them all the benefits that will come down the road. And I see where their motivation and their energy changes, right? So if while I'm telling you all the negative stuff, you're going like, uh, uh, uh and getting really negative about it. And I if it's that like, easy to talk them out of it, they right, have no business. Then there's no it. business. But if I'm talking about the negative stuff and you're doubling down on it and you're like, I understand, I understand, and then I start talking about the positive stuff. And the biggest thing I'll look for in an indicator is they start asking more about the negative stuff. So instead of being like, oh, well, what's the compensation? Tell me more about how much I'm getting paid. They're 
they'll be like, so how many hours on average do you put in a week? And questions like that, that means that person is genuinely thinking, hey, is this something I can do? Is this? And then they go, I go, you know, you know, it's going to be 40, 50 hours. And they go, okay, that means I'm going to have to, you know, work only Sundays at my other job right mm-hmm. now, whatever the version of it is. Those people are really thinking about their schedules and their life and their discipline. They're approaching it in a realistic way of thinking about so it. So really, I don't have questions. I wonder what they want to know. Do they want to know about the pay? Do they want to know about time off? Do they want to know about dress code? Or do they want to know about hours put in a week, about um, um, best practices? Do they want to know about extra training methods or how quickly they can get out and start selling and making money? That's Those are things you look for that are more positive where something that may be more dress code, base pay, things of that nature that are for that I find are common questions for people entering a base level job are things I try to look for. There's a big note here that I want to kind of zoom in on, and that's um, I work for myself now, but I've had a number of jobs at pretty big organizations that I ultimately was really proud of myself for being able to secure the job with. And one of the biggest things that served me well is having a list of questions to ask. Mm -hmm. I think that's so much more important than just being prepared to answer Flip the interview. Flip it, yes. The best interviews that I've had when I'm interviewing for a job are when I interviewed the person and not the other way around. I try to flip the interview, just like you said. You come in with minimum 10 questions. I'd I'd say 10 to 15. Not that you're necessarily even going to ask them all. Prioritize them in order of most importance of how which ones you need to ask. But I always came in with a list of like 10 or 15 questions and I would say, hey, what's your favorite part about the culture of working here? Because right. that's really important to me. I want to be in a great environment. You're you're showing how seriously you take the opportunity one, but you're also showing that you're, you're planning on being here for a long time, so it's important to you. You're showing that you take it very seriously. You're showing that you have a lot of confidence in yourself because it's you're not you're not coming in on the foot of hey i need to explain why i deserve to be here you're coming in and saying okay here's why you should have me right it reframes it i found ever since i like when i became like uh, a little bit more of a managerial tra- trainer and started um earning near six figures or above six figures i really found that interviews completely switched up and this is what people who aren't in that position don't necessarily realize is if i'm going to sit down with someone in person and they're interviewing me now when I'm hoping in whatever job I am to be earning near or above six figures, I am interviewing you. Like I I am 100% interviewing your company to see if you have the potential to provide me what I need. Yeah. Like, and a lot of times, you know, it's depending on the position, if it's sales, if it's training, if it's management, if it's logistics, if it's social media, a lot of the things that I've gained skills in, I'm going to feel relatively confident that I can do the job. What I'm wondering now is, is are you going to build the life balance and the things that are necessary for me to be able to succeed here? And I'll find I've, pro- I've had more interviews where at the end of the interview, I told them I couldn't take the job mm-hmm. than I have been denied for a me job too. in the last couple of years. I've been just like, that, hey, I, I appreciate that, but that's just not going to be you know the kind of compensation that I'm looking for. And I feel like based on my skill level that 
you know, this is a little low grade for me. And I'll have people, interviewees who are like, oh, absolutely. No, after listening to you, I completely agree. Mm-hmm. They're like, no, this isn't a job for you. You need to be making way more. We'll put you in for something else. I had a, yeah. I had an interview, I guess that's what we're telling. I had an interview with Amazon where they interviewed me for a sales position, um, basically riding around, offering businesses to make, to be Amazon drop spots, right? Um, you make commission off of it and they paid you like 30 bucks an hour okay. as base, which isn't terrible money, no. all things considering 30 that's bucks an hour awesome plus money. commissions, right? It's a dream job for a lot of people. Um, started talking about it. The very nice interview lady was giving me descriptions. And I explained to her, I'm like, so um, if I'm understanding correctly, this job, you know, if I'm going to even consider this job, I need to know it has like solid six figure potential that the people in this job are consistently making six figures. Mm-hmm. And she told me they weren't. They're were making eighty and ninety thousand dollars a year. And that's great money, of course. That's a massive amount of money for a ton of people. But that just wasn't conducive to what I was looking for based on the career I was currently in. And because of that, I told her that I'm like, I, I love the position. I think I'd be great at it. I think your your explanation of it was fantastic. But just based on the the way the package is presented, I don't believe that would be, you know, conducive of my time or my energy to get this. And the way I spoke about it, she immediately put me in for a interview as a Amazon manager in the local area. She was like, Oh, well, I'm as obvious. I didn't realize that you were in that position. I'm going to submit you to our our um, administrative um, interview team and mm-hmm. see if we can get you something that's a little more up your eye. I was like, thank you. Boop. That was it. So the people who spend so much time trying to get an interview in that respect, like a high level interview at Amazon, I actually got the lower level interview and just had the mentality already, naturally the energy of someone who was one of those high earners because that's the position I was in that they noticed, the interviewer noticed a difference between me and the other people that had been interviewed and put me up in that respect yeah. without a total, without a ton different in my background than I'm sure the other people she was interviewing. So, I also think a lot of people end up in jobs that they ultimately find themselves hating because they don't go in with that mentality of why should you, why should I work for your company? Mm-hmm. They come in with the mentality of selling themselves instead and it part of it is selling yourself obviously there's subtext of it there but if you come in with the the goal of selling yourself really what you're kind of your internal monologue is you're telling yourself you're just looking for the first op, first best opportunity uh if you go in saying okay why should you have me at your company it kind of reframes the way you're thinking about it going into and ultimately i think you're going to end up picking the best fit for yourself if you ha- if you know the standards of what you're looking for and you don't really take any less. I've always called it, I always say it's girls, sales, and interviews are the three things where if you go in with an extremely strong, it's selling yourself is a good way to put it. If you go in strong and attempt to sell yourself and sales, we call it um, peeing all over yourself like a puppy, <laughs> like a puppy who, who gets excited pees all over himself and ruins any excitement in that moment because everyone starts yelling at him. Mm -hmm. When a new sales rep gets close to a sale, they get extremely excited and they start talking and really fast and get super excited and and, and in the face and I'm so excited, this is going to be such a great decision for you and they pee all over themselves and they ruin it. Um, This is so great, this product is so great. People do this and with girls too, right? So you wind up talking to a girl and you start talking all about yourself. And yeah, I'm a, I'm a UCF Delta SIG graduate, school of business, MBA, all the best stuff about you. And by the end of five minutes, that girl's not interested and you realize you haven't asked a question about her and you got excited because she was pretty and you just start listing all these reasons you're great. People do that in interviews too, right? It's those places where you're nervous and you need the approval of someone else to be able to consider it successful. You start listing off everything that you're good at, all these skills you've gained and everything that you've done. 
when really ev the last 20 people this person talked to list the exact same social media, team building, discipline, on time that you just listed. They have your resume already. Right. You don't need to come in and just reread your resume to them. Exactly. They've and already read your qualifications. So I find that even if, let's say it's not even about who's the best candidate for the job necessarily. Let's say it's not about that. It's about who makes the best impression on who you're interviewing, mm -hmm. right? And I think we would all agree that's usually the case. Well, best impression isn't always going to be the person that answers the questions the most correctly, especially when they're meeting so many people. It's going to be the person that's the most memorable and the most interesting. Mm -hmm. And if they have spent the last 15 interviews asking people questions, and then you flip that around and start asking them questions, interested in their job, their role, what they're doing, their experience with the company, the time they've spent, all that kind of stuff, it's the opposite of every other interview that they've had through that day. There's one interview And that people sticks just out. love talking about themselves. Who would have thunk asking yeah. questions about others Here always makes you look good? Doing a podcast. It's that's the whole. why that's why I can do a podcast because people love talking about themselves. Exactly. So you reframe it there and they're enjoying it and it's going to I like what you said about the most memorable. It's going to be the most memorable because you flipped the script on them and because they just enjoyed the interview the most. Right. And then obviously whether you do get in a job all comes after that. But if it's a job you really want, most of the time you're going to mess up because you really want it, because you're nervous, because you're excited, because you're, you haven't built that mental barrier of, hey, this is a, this is a business situation. I need to calm down, relax, go in cool-headed and ask questions. You go in and you pee on yourself. You go in and you get too excited. And I think, especially for younger people, when they're interviewing with people that are older than them or more experienced than them, they have a tendency to talk to people as if they're above them on a level just higher than they are. Talk to them like an adult where people, especially, like I said, younger professionals, like we're always talking about on here, have to learn to take someone that may be twice their age and either come up to their level or bring that person down to their level where you're talking on equal terms mm -hmm. as peers instead of maybe as mentor and student. And people have a hard time, especially in an interview situation where they feel they're the outsider, getting to that level of equality when they're talking to somebody on the same platform, per se. I totally agree with that. Um, another thing I wanted to go into a little bit is kind of going back to your transition into management. I think this could be an interesting segue because we've talked a lot about things that have kind of been successes in that. What what are the things that you think you've done well that allowed you the opportunity to be put into management? Um, I think number one is genuine enthusiasm. So that's the one I get told a lot. I've said this to you a few times, but all my managers, I would say I'll, I'll – yeah, I, I light myself on fire and people will come watch me burn. I am pumped to sell solar. I am pumped for green energy. I am pumped to build a team and make money and do something. If I'm going to do something, I'm putting 100% of my effort into it. It's like I'm not going to um, half-ass it. I'm not going to put low low energy into it. I'm not going to come in tired from whatever went on in my life before. I come in with genuine enthusiasm every day. And that translated over time to inspiring others, people who were – getting more down or allowing their emotions to affect them or had an external locus of control where they were blaming other factors, they could look at me who, even if I was doing worse than they were in some cases, or if I was doing better, it just depended on the month, my attitude, my energy, my joy for what I was doing didn't change. I was, I was um, um, immovable in yeah. that respect. And, the, the, and I think that inspired a lot of other people to be the same way. And so when I moved into training, I, it wound up being just like, being a model of what you inevitably want those people to be because that's what i'll find is people will come in they'll see that you know things don't 
I can get through a lot of the no's and a lot of the challenges of a sales career without it necessarily bothering me to the same degree it does others. And they can't figure out how to capture that for themselves and they don't know how. But the people who can come in and they wind up with massive success because they realize they're like, oh, you know, it's not like, you know, you found a normal job or you fail in school or you fail in college. You know, you almost want to specifically have some kind of negative emotion about that because that that negative emotion is built into you to almost teach you to do better and improve the next time. Right. Mm -hmm. And in sales, it's the exact opposite. If you have a negative feeling about a sale, the next one you walk in is more likely to fail. If you they would we would we would freak out because people would go three and four weeks without making a sale and then they'd make one and they make seven back to back. And we couldn't, you know, the anomaly that's across all sales organizations. And the reason why is that one got them excited and then getting a second one in a row got them excited. And that excitement carried for a while until they got enough money or enough sales that they got tired again. Um, and though it, it just shows, goes to show that someone who can keep up that genuine enthusiasm and keep up that energy and then not only that, but inspire people to behave the same way is really the number one thing in sales that makes a difference because it's not only what you know and all your information, it's how much you care and the personality that you put into it. I think it comes as fairly intuitive why that is so important of and course. why that served you so well. How do you do it? Uh, no, I mean, it's genu for that one, for me, it's just genuinely intuitive. I mean, I see this a lot in you and a lot of the other people that, you know, we surround ourselves with. I, I keep people around me who have the same kind of mentality. First of all, I just don't you know, the, the whole mantra that we always say is I'm alive, awake, and I will do great. I will not allow negative, um, distracted people to influence my life. And the whole logic of it is, is there's like two types of people that you're going to surround yourself with. And half of them are going to be people who are positive and good influences and have this kind of energy, maybe not all the time, but enough that they affect you positively. And they're going to be people that don't. And I, have a, I find that a lot of people have a very hard time discerning what those different type of people are. Um, someone who is who is positive for you in this respect isn't necessarily someone who's always nice, who's always kind, or someone who's always positive. It's someone who's always working hard, someone who's always disciplined, someone who's always challenging you to do better and doing better in their own life, mm. right? I keep a lot of those people around me. Their successes lead to me wanting more successes, lead to me working harder. If if you and Andy have a great success in Chef on the Fly, that inspires me to want to do something with my company, mm. and even though I'm cheering for y'all every single second, right? Where if I'm around people who just love playing video games all the time. I want to go play video games with them. I love yeah. video games. So that's just, you know, knowing that duality of me and knowing that I need people around me that influence me in a specific direction has been probably the number one factor. I always tell people my my girlfriend Becca is the best example where people are always like, well, no, I just want positive people around me. That is not always the case. My girlfriend, if I want to take a nap, is not very positive about me napping. I'll be down for about 25 minutes. She'll be like, Time to get up. What you doing? We got work to do today. There's the sun's up. Um, um, what's it? The the frozen quote like, the sun's awake. It's time to play. Let's get up. Time to mm -hmm. do something. We got a life to live. And that energy, although, like for me, who might want to take a nap and be more relaxed, some people would consider that negative in their partner. Where I consider it one of the greatest positives in my relationship because I have someone who every day inspires me to get up and do better and be better as a person. Is that always my my favorite thing to listen to? Do sometimes I just want to lay there and take a nap? Absolutely. Would I trade it for someone who just let me nap whenever I wanted and relax whenever I wanted? Absolutely not. Because the difference in how those people affect me in my lives is important. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Now, another thing I wanted to go back to is just um, the kind of culture of founding a company and startup and some of the advantages and disadvantages. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that. What has that process, what are, what are the biggest things that you think about 
as part of being part of that because I think there's a lot of takeaways potentially for someone that wants to get into that position or is thinking about it. So being in the larger business, I think the number one thing that I gleaned from it, like now that I'm out of it, is the level of training that I got there. I learned, I got to work with a lot more people. I ran a significant number of appointments. I trained a lot of people and worked with a lot of different reps. So as far as volume of training and quality of training, I find a company that established is generally going to have a lot more of that, right? So, and that comes into me and the new company company since I'm the training department, but the way I was trained up and the level of specificity put into my training was extremely important and wound up um, doing me well as I moved on. Now that I'm in this new company, it's for someone who has to essentially build or work with a team to build a training program that is completely new, that is completely fresh, that's taking people from no idea how to sell solar to masters of it. It's a challenge and it's something that takes time and it's something that takes trial and error. And I find that, you know, even if I if I give one small piece of inaccurate advice or something that's not optimal, that can change up a whole way someone um, talks about our product or gives their speech or pervades their energy to a homeowner. So I have to be very, very careful to stay regimented, um, stay disciplined with the way I teach these people, not them let them get far off of our, our methods, where I feel like in a big company, it was already so built into the culture that that just naturally happened. If you're in a big company, everyone you're talking to is giving you the same kind of advice because they've hammered this home with so many people. With the situation I'm in, I could give someone a piece of advice that says like, uh, you know, you can gloss over this certain part if the homeowner already understands it. There's certain yeah. pieces where it's like, like if you're with an electrical engineer, you don't want to explain how electricity works in deep detail because you're going to look like an idiot because they yeah. know significantly more than you. So yeah. I've had one the other day where the lady was an electrical engineer. So I glossed over. I'm like, I'm not going to explain the difference between AC and DC electricity to you. And she's like, you definitely don't need to do that. So I skip over that because yeah. it doesn't make sense. Well, I explained that to someone who was um, a representative of mine and I found that they were skipping over pieces of script in completely inappropriate times, making a guess on whether they should. A, an educated guess, like they were assuming it was the right thing to do, but then learning when we looked at it later, there was absolutely the wrong thing to do. They were skipping over sections of scripting um, and our proposal that would have made or break the appointment that they were on. So learning that the because it's a smaller organization means my effect and my ripples are much, much larger. You're so building I, the culture. Right. You're a huge part of building so the I culture. So I have to be much more careful with what I do, and I can't do as much trial and error as maybe I could have in a big company. I could try things. I could teach them things. I could I could say something a certain way, and then maybe someone more experienced than me would come up and say, hey, maybe you want to change this a little bit. You want to do it a different way. And now, if I because I'm a little bit higher in that position, if I make a mistake, it affects, it ripple affects people below me. Mm -hmm. And then I have to go back and correct that in a bunch of individual people. So I would say I'm much slower to speak now than maybe I was in the other company. I'm much more sure about the information that I give out because I'm hesitant to Because you have out. to be more intentional with it. Right, and I'm hesitant to give out inaccurate information because the effort it would take to pull it back and fix it is so much more than it would be just to wait. So I find- Just to wait and like look and make sure that you have the right answer. Right, so I find, I find you have to, I won't say annoy people exactly, but there are times where like my representatives would want to get out selling quicker or want to get certain- pieces of training quicker, pieces of information quicker, I kind of have to slow them down or tell them no. And where they're frustrated wanting to get moving as quickly as possible, feeling like they have the ability to learn more information, they're really not ready. They really need to double down on the information that they've already been provided to learn. Um, and so like 
being patient and not letting their annoyance and their energies affect me and being like, no, we need to spend extra time on this. I know y'all don't realize why this is so important right now, but you will in a few weeks has been something that's really important as well. What are the biggest changes that you've had to make in your personal life as a part of being in such a different situation? Uh, I, I would say there's advantages personal life-wise, right? Like I have a much more control of my time and my my freedom of where I spend my time. So no one else is telling me well where and when to go exactly, but I definitely am putting just as much time as I was before hours-wise. So before mm-hmm. where I was probably close to 50, 60 hours a week on solar, I'm probably 40 to 50 hours a week on solar right now, maybe down just a little bit, Um, but I control my own time. So I set the appointments with my homeowners, decide when I go. I schedule the trainings with my team around their schedules. I decide, you know, what time our meetings are and things of that nature, which allows me a little more freedom of schedule with my time. And I've tried to pass that on to people that work for me by working with their schedules and being, you know, polite and um, flexible with them. But it doesn't change the number of hours I worked. And that's one thing I really want people to understand is that, like, no matter how hard you I promise a, a promotion will not lower the amount of work you have to do under any circumstance yeah. ever. It'll usually just vary that work and make it more complicated more mm-hmm. than anything else. And that's what I found is my workload didn't drop and I never expected it to. But it did become more complicated where I have more free time to do with what I want and I can set my hours. But I have 20 different um, tasks to do instead of maybe two or three where before my skills were you know, drive around to appointments, sell, go to meetings, do paperwork. Now it's all those things on top of build websites, train a team, um, hire, do um, managerial tasks, background payroll, um, create proposals, all kinds of different things that just affect the the business as a whole. I'm having to learn to, to control my time better and to manage it better, but at least it's me managing it, right? And I think that's a big difference that I've seen in how my lifestyles change. It's, it's more work and it's more responsibility, but it's more responsibility in my hands, which is where I want it in the first place. How do you manage the difficulties that come with just... So th- this is something interesting to think about because I, this is something I think about a lot. There's a lot of kind of tools I've had to give myself to really manage so going through similar things because I've found my general workday change a lot similar to what you're describing in the sense that it's a lot more complicated when I am doing things it's right. it's changed from doing maybe little admin tasks to getting on a call and having to get into this really really focused creativity to come up with new ideas or whatever that may be it's it's more mentally draining things abstract tasks more abstract tasks and more mentally draining as a result of that how do you manage that because when you are having to to solve more complex problems even if the workload is staying the same it takes a lot more work here is kind of the super secret about me that no one really knows it's like most valuable piece of information about me that no one maybe necessarily realizes. There are left brain and right brain people, and I am naturally a creative and ideas person more than people necessarily realize. I like, I like, you know, I like writing and I like drawing and I like coming up with ideas and I like big pictures. I'm not as good at the details and the business and the sales aspect of things naturally. That's something that I've gained skills in and leveraged because I realized how much quicker it would allow me to get where I wanted to be, right? That was through strategy. I wasn't, mm-hmm. and, and I happen to be really good at talking, so that's that's advantageous too. But 
I'm naturally good at ideas and creative and plans and business proposals. Heck, I, I, I used to laugh. We used to have friends who I would talk all the time about when we were 17 and 16. I'd tell them, like, I got this big idea. We're all going to be in this company. I'm going to build it. This is going to be the structure. I've been doing that since before. I remember was, you doing yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, that's been my, my, my thing since before, you know, any of this ever started. And, you know, I've, different versions of that have appeared for all of us throughout. You know, you've hired people there in our circles. I have. And we've built things, you know, all individually that have been incredible. But I was never not thinking of ideas in the right way to do it. So my brain just, that's all I'm doing naturally. My family gets almost annoyed with me because all I'll sit around and want to talk about is like new things for my book or for my solar or for whatever it is. That's all I want to talk about is business concepts and ideas and planning and blah, blah, blah. That's why I'm such good um, colleagues with people like you and Andy because that's what you guys love to talk about. So I can get around you guys. Today, we sit here for, we'll sit here for six or seven hours and we'll talk about another thing. Oh, that was a great day. Bye, Brody. We come back and do it again because that's what so we're funny. interested in. I called Andy yesterday to ask him one question. It was to ask him if he was going to this event that I'm going to. It turned into an hour and 15-minute conversation where at the end of it, we were like, shit, that should have been a podcast. What event are you going to be at, Brody? Podfest. So this is a cool thing to talk about. There's a podcast convention here in Orlando, Florida, January 26th to 29th. So for anyone who is listening to this that might be a friend of mine, sorry, that does mean I'm not going to Gasparilla next year. But I'm going to this podcast convention here in town where essentially it's just like a every day that that it's going on. I want to say it's like a Thursday through Sunday or maybe a Friday through Sunday, mm-hmm. something like that. Every day it's going to be different like lunch and learns, educational sessions, different like after parties and networking events throughout the whole thing and just this big convention all around podcasting. So I'm going to hopefully get some great networking in, meet some other podcasters, hopefully some here in town, but also in other places. Hopefully maybe some people that'll be on the podcast or I'll be on theirs. Uh, I think it's gonna be incredible for networking, but also just for trying to hone my skills as a podcaster. So if anyone's been listening to Profession Session and really wants to meet Brody and be on the podcast and talk <laughs> about all the awesome things you learned, he is going to be the the Orlando Podfest at the end of January. So come and see him. Absolutely. That's, I'm so excited for that. You and Andy are going to kill at that. So another thing I wanted to kind of go back to is, like I we touched on a couple things already, but I've learned some really cool stuff in management theory this semester in some of my classes that I think could lend a lot to the theory behind a lot of what you're going through right now in your management transition. Right. And one thing I wanted to go over, I had talked to you about this off air, but is this equation of motivating force. So motivating force basically is the, the actual kind of what it equals is like the amount of motivation that you have towards something. And the whole theory here is that you can kind of influence this and either increase or decrease motivation based on pulling some levers around this. So basically the equation is this, and I'll, I'm sure I'll overlay this one too, but it's motivating force equals expectancy times instrumentality times valence. So I'm going to go through the three things. And then I think it'd be interesting to talk about like your experience in management so far and how you think you've been able to maybe recognize these things in people that are working for you and maybe any ways that you've found successes or difficulties in pulling the levers of these. Right. So the 
the first one, expectancy, means the odds of success if I try. So when we're talking about these different concepts, this is basically someone's kind of internal conversation that lends into what their ultimate motivation is towards a goal or an outcome. So expectancy, it's basically like if you are working towards a promotion or something, if you have high expectancy, it means that you think that you, if you try to get the promotion, you will be successful. Mm -hmm. So that's expectancy. That's the first one. And the second one is instrumentality. This means like your odds of actually getting the outcome you're looking for if you succeed. So if you are working towards a promotion and you know exactly what it takes the promotion, this is your internal belief that if you do all of those things, you will actually get the promotion. You'll actually get the sought after outcome. Right. So we'll come back to that one because there's a really important point for managers in that. The third one is valence. And this is actually just the value that you place on the outcome. So if we're talking about the promotion example, how valuable is that promotion to you? Is it something that's like make or break for you? Is it something that you really, really deep down need and want for some reason? That means you have high valence on it. So all of these play into motivation. And a big point here is if any of them is ever zero, if you don't care about it at all or you don't think that you'll get the promotion if you do the things or if you just don't think you're capable of doing the things at all, then your motivation is going to be zero. And those three are what? One more time? Expectancy, instrumentality, and valence. Okay. So I want to go back to instrumentality for a second because the, well, to as a segue into this, the other two, expectancy and valence, are very much internal things that as a manager, you don't have a lot of control over being able to influence. You cannot really influence beyond a certain point how much value someone places on actually getting that promotion. If they don't care about getting a promotion, you can't make them care about it. If they don't think that they're capable of doing the things that it takes to get the promotion, then they just don't think that they're capable of it. They don't have the confidence in their abilities to do it. You can maybe influence that to an extent, but not that much. So the biggest one that you can influence as a manager is actually the instrumentality piece. So if you really understand and double down on that as a manager, then you can really make a big impact. And what that means is, so the instrumentality again is a person's belief of the actual odds that they'll get the sought after outcome if they succeed in doing the things that it takes to get there. Right. The best thing that you can do as a manager is make it very clear what it takes to actually get that promotion and follow through on it. So say that someone needs to have a certain amount of sales to get a certain promotion. You tell them exactly how many sales it takes, and then if they get it, you follow through and you promote them. Right, of course. So setting realistic expectations for how to grow within the company makes a lot of, that's a lot of what it is. I would say, you know, specifically in what we do, the instrumentality is probably the the highest thing. It's obviously, like you said, the most controllable. So with that being said, that they'll actually get what they want if they succeed is something that's very easy for us to show. You know, one of the biggest in sales, it's really about freedom of time and profit. And I think those are the two things that successful salespeople see tons of. Absolutely, you know, easy six figures for people who have never made six figures before is a big deal. And we see that repeatedly. Um, I would say expectancy is by far 
the largest challenge because in this kind of field, it dwindles quickly with time. So you come in usually with high expectancy that you can probably do what is expected of you. And then we're trying to tamper that or um, temper that the whole time. So we're trying to explain, you know, it's going to be harder than you think. It's going to be more difficult than you think. You need to have a long-term mindset with this. You're going to fail a lot before you succeed. And I find, like you said, the expectancy is a very difficult thing to control and people need to be able to lose a lot without their expectancy going down to Mm -hmm. be able to succeed here. And I think that's the biggest challenge in this specific field is there's a there's an absolute ton of reward when you get to the top. It's a reward that people want. And I think we make it clear how to get there. The ability, the belief that you personally can do it starts maybe at a five or a six or a seven out of ten. And then by very quickly, if they don't see success, hits a one or a two. And by the time it's hit that zero or that one, you basically might as well part ways with the employee because it's never going to make it back up again. So you have to find them somewhat quick success as a manager. That's important to help them to success as quickly as possible. But obviously, that's only so controllable as well. So it's about um, setting expectations for them that is going to take a long period of time for them to reach that point, I think is one of the biggest things we've done to, to try to help that expectancy and where they come in at. And I guess along the way, what you're kind of saying there is you need to be assessing, is their expectancy decreasing? Is it are they wavering in what you saw from them initially if you saw high expectancy at first, but they do have a couple failures or a couple challenges? Do you see that dwindling? That's probably a sign that it's not working out. What right. are some things that you see that show you that that might be the case? So it, I guess it, it's very, very obvious in someone's personality as it goes on. And I find it has a lot to do with what you set for them. So if I tell someone that they might get one or two sales a month and that'll make them five, six, seven thousand dollars a month, that can get them very excited. And when they fail to sell 10 times in a row, but there's still two or three weeks left in the month, they're still excited. If I tell someone they're going to sell 50% of what they sit on, and then they don't sell 10 in a row, then all of a sudden it dwindles massively. The amount of effort put in is different. Their energy is different. That's one of the biggest things in this kind of job. And and this goes for any job that's front-facing. So that can be acting, comedy, sales, public speaking, personal training. A lot of these jobs are going to be this. Confidence and energy are two of the most immutable factors. So you have to know what you're talking about. You have to be confident in what you're talking about. But you also come in with an air of positivity and joy and happiness and go get People respond to that differently in all these fields. And I find that the number one thing I notice is that disappears. The the joy, the enthusiasm, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. It just dwindles out of someone. You hear the difference in their voice, the difference in how they're dressed, their hair's not brushed as well, they're not wearing nice clothes, the enthusiasm drains. And I, I've been I've seen people's enthusiasm drain and then something happened that, you know, brought them back to the top before. So I'm not saying it's impossible, but most of the time as your enthusiasm drains, you have a higher success or higher chance of failure. And as your chance of failure goes up and your enthusiasm drains, usually you're spiraling down. So we have to teach people to be enthusiastic and to be positive and to have realistic expectation in the face of repeated failure. And I think that's the immutable factor that makes our job so hard for people to get into and consistently succeed at. But you can kind of filter out for the people that will be able to deal with that by just explaining on the front end, hey, this could be hard as shit. Like, you're going to have a difficult time and fail a lot. Are you okay with that? Right. Can you handle that? Have you handled that? Is it worth it? And then most people will be like, and this is the other thing, is most people, no matter how experienced they are, are going to be like, 
you know, no, I mean, I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail a bunch. Mm -hmm. That's completely understandable. So I don't want to fail a bunch. If they told me I was going to fail a bunch and that was their pitch, I probably wouldn't join that job either. Now, if I told you you're going to fail a bunch, a bunch, a bunch, you're probably going to spend two months failing. You're probably going to make almost no money. You're going to struggle. It's going to be difficult. But then month three, as long as you stick with it and you keep practicing, you're going to make $15,000. And you'll mm -hmm. probably only more from there on in. Your family's going to be provided for. Everything you need is going to be taken care of. You have to put your nose to the grindstone and not give up for a minimum, a minimum of two months. It's going to be hard. No one's going to understand it. And it's going to require you to challenge yourselves in a lot of different ways. But at the end, you'll make more money than you ever had before and you'll have freedom of time. People will respond to that. And that's a realistic expectation. Mm -hmm. People are at the point in their, and I think people, once they're an adult, they're at the point where they don't believe things come for free, right? So if I tell someone you could spend, yeah, man, you could spend 10 hours a week working and won't be that much work. You set your own schedule, you do whatever you want, take off whenever you want, that's it. And you make $100,000 a year. Anyone who joined that is naive because mm -hmm. anyone in the real world knows that if that existed, we'd all be doing it and that yeah. it doesn't. When I tell someone, look, it's going to take 60 hours a week, it's going to take your whole heart, it's going to take energy, it's going to take waking up on days where you've had failures and having getting up anyway, it's going to take watching other people around you give up and still going through with it, and it's going to be months and it's going to be no money and then you're going to start killing it, that at least they can go, okay, well, maybe that actually is true. Maybe if I do put in that much effort, something true can come of it, but at least it's honest and they can see in the interview process, I find a lot of the times the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think just being able to understand the the setting of realistic expectations as a manager will help you filter out for the correct people to be putting into your roles and your jobs and organizations. And obviously it's not always going to work out, but it definitely makes it more likely that it will. No, you get people who come in and they're, you know, they'll be I find awesome. Two, two, two different people, right, say the exact same thing to start an interview, and this is a common thing I hear. You know, I just want to get paid what I'm worth. If I'm going to be putting in so much time, I don't care how much time it is as long as I'm not breaking my back and I'm getting paid what I'm worth for that time. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of people say. If they're working in lower-end jobs or their, you know, service or construction or anything where you're putting in a ton of effort um, and physical effort for low pay. And then my kind of argument is, okay, you know, there's no real physical challenge in this job. It's going to be mentally challenging. It's going to take just as many hours as you were doing before, and it's going to be a few months with no pay. What, how does that sound to you? Someone who is same exact, you know, started the exact same exact way. Someone whose picture in their mind was sales at 60 hours a week, busting their butt to get out of their career that they're currently in, is going to be excited by that prospect. Someone who's imagining like, uh, a, a work at home job where on the computer all day you only work 35 hours a week and it's more cushy is going to hear what I have to say and be like oh that is not what I meant at all so it also helps frame like the type of person that's joining your job even though they may open in the same way what they're actually envisioning may be different so I just try to give them the most accurate vision I possibly can and engage their reaction yeah makes total sense mm -hmm. Another thing as a lever of management that I really wanted to talk about is goal setting. And right. I think this is, I'll kind of explain the the approach I want to take here with it. And then I would love to hear about like any, again, successes, failures that you've had in management along the way with goal setting, because I think that's a really big part of any kind of management job. But getting into goal setting theory a little bit, um, as a quick background here, a thing that I learned about and I'll, I'll use this little study as an example. There was a, uh, a truck loading study 
that was done years ago that I learned about where there was unionized hourly employees that they that were basically loading trucks full of logs to transport them. Mm-hmm. And basically the situation was that if the trucks were ever underloaded, the company would lose money just because it takes more labor right, to, for it to happen. But if they were overloaded, there was a chance that the driver and the company would get fined if they were cited by the highway department. And mm-hmm. the driver could lose their job as a result of that. So because of that, they found that the, uh, in general, the trucks, the truckers would load the trucks to only about 63% capacity. So they were really losing a lot of money because of that and just the amount of labor that it took. Mm -hmm. So they decided to just try to put in a goal, uh, just kind of an arbitrary goal to help kind of get that a little bit higher without people getting fined and and drivers losing their jobs. So they literally just set a goal of like, I wanna say, so it was 94% capacity is what the goal was, is that all the trucks would have 94% loading so that there was just less labor happening. And what ended up actually happening is in the first month, the load, the average loading percentage increased to 80% from 63. Wow. And then the second month it actually dropped down to 70%. And the reason for that was that they wanted to see whether, and they, when they set this goal, the important thing here is that there was no real incentive for reaching the goal, mm-hmm. but there was also no punishment for not reaching the goal. Right. So in the second month, it actually decreased to 70% because they were the truckers were trying to test whether they really wouldn't get punished for it decreasing, and they held to that there was no punishment for that. But in the third month, it went all the way up to 90%. Right. And it actually stayed there over a nine-month period, and I think like they just kept that as the goal. Right. Just by having that kind of arbitrary goal with no real method of – there was no real incentive for it or anything, but it they found that the truckers were kind of gamifying it and doing different things to try to reach it just because it was the goal. Right, right. Just communicating realistic expectations still with your with your employees and exactly what you expect of them, what they can do. Maybe they're just trying to avoid losing their jobs as much as anything. You know? Sure. So the, the big takeaway there was just that in a practical work setting, goal setting works, whether it's – I mean, the, the type of goal is not as important as just having a goal, I think. And you don't have to have some grand incentive for reaching the goal, but you also need to make sure not to have a punishment for it. Mm -hmm. But just goal setting in general works really well. I'm curious whether as a manager through your management experience, you've had any big successes or failures with goal setting or seen, seen people sink or swim with goals involved. I absolutely have. And I think there's kind of at least two kinds of ways that I've seen this be successful. And there's one which is, I'll I'll call it like the way that affects me the most, which is goals based on um, competition. So if if you make a leaderboard and the number one most sales guy gets his name written at the top of a list, I'm about that. All I need is the list. I just want to challenge. I want other people who are excited about the challenge and want to do it with me. And it's not a you know, it's not an angry, loser, loss, competitive thing. It's just a challenge, and yeah. I just like a challenge, right? So you get people like that, and that's an easy way to motivate people that I've seen be truly successful. And the interesting thing about it is I've seen other pe- things get pulled in. I've seen people give, like, prizes and trips and all kinds of other things, and none of those were as successful as just saying no no punishment, no, no um, reward um, chart of success, first yeah. to last. And I think that's extremely powerful within itself. Um, but... 
outside of that, I would say the only way that I've seen be extremely effective in at least my line of business has been completely avoiding company level goals and taking people individually and teaching them how to make individual goals for themselves. So I find company level goals are often arbitrary, set by someone else, and you know, you kind of, it's voluntary participation per se. Um, and it's not something you wrote for yourself, so it's someone volunteering you to participate, and people resist that very hard. What I do with people is I try to sit them down and I try to teach them like my basic goal-setting strategy, because you would just be shocked at how many people just don't do this, even if they feel like they know how. So I just hold them accountable. I say six, three, six, nine months. So I need three, six, nine months, and I need a goal for those months, like multiple goals in a bullet point format for those months. And you don't have to put a dead date on exactly what it is, but we're at three, six, and nine months. Here's where I want to be. And then I take their next month, the current month, like the one they're on, and for the next 30 to 45 days, every single day, we build in time and their free time for how they're going to work toward accomplishing those goals, right? You take the goals, you work backwards. Right, and you work backwards, exactly. In three months, I want to be here. So what do I need to be doing in my daily life to get me here in three months? And we work backwards from there. So I create this dichotomy where now it's not about goals and it's not about anything else, but you, a list of things that you need to do in front of you and can you bring yourself to do them? Which brings us back to the only thing that actually matters is discipline. Mm -hmm. Because if I can put in front of you and say, okay, where are your goals for three, six, nine months? Give me your seven reasons why someone goes through that so they know why they want something. Okay, you want this thing desperately, deep in your soul, to take care of your family, to provide, to prove people wrong. Where in three, six, nine months, what would you need to be able to do that? They write these down, they get points, you know, I want to marry my girlfriend, I want to own a house, I want to make this much money, I want to get these pets, I want to move my parents somewhere, I want to whatever. And then we start looking at, okay, if you were going to move your parents somewhere out of their shitty house, that means you're going to need a $40,000 down payment. And that's nine months down the road. So how are you going to need to make at least $150,000 to have $40,000 sitting aside in nine months? What are we going to do daily to make you $150,000? We break it down. Okay, that means you need to be waking up at 8 a.m. doing this. That means you need to sell this many a week. That means you need to do this. I break it down. And then it gets to the point where you can look them in the eyes and you can say, okay, here it is. Here's your eight or 10 hours. You wake up tomorrow. You don't do it. And when you think about it, tell yourself there's no chance it's going to happen because until you start doing it, it's not going to happen. But these are your daily items. This is your hour by hour for how you can be successful in three, six, nine months. And I take the goal setting piece out of it. Mm. And it's just like plug this. If you plug this, do this for three to six to nine months, your goals will appear. And they just will. And the truth is you can almost guarantee on that because I haven't seen someone yet who's put in three, six, nine months of true, honest, unbridled effort and not hit the goals that they set out ever. Without exception. Yeah. Like, it's extremely rare. If I if they have, because obviously I've missed goals and things before in my life, it's because I was not focusing on that as much as I could have for some other aspect of my life or because something came up and got in the way. But anytime I've been able to truly commit three, six, nine months to something, I find that I come out positive on the other side and that people who do it in that fashion, not complicated, basic three, six, nine months, and then a month to a month and a half of daily activity. You can set that up for yourself at the end of that 30 to 45 days. You do it again for the next 30 to 45 days until you hit your three-month goal and then evaluate where you're at and then adjust your six-month goals accordingly. I teach people this method of writing goals, and I find that, like, company goals are arbitrary and that most people don't even know how to invent goals for themselves. So how could they possibly aim for a company goal when they've never even had goals for themselves? Not because they don't want or have like internal goals for themselves because they've never wrote it down, put a date to it and then executed on it. I just kind of put that back in their face and make them do it. Yeah. And I find whether you stay with my company or leave or not, if that's the only single thing that I teach you in the whole time you're with me, I did right by you because you can take that wherever you go. 
into any part of your life. Exactly. It should be in every part of your life. It really should. As a real quick tangent from that, this actually, this whole goal setting conversation, your response there just made me think of um, my number one favorite question to ask when I was ever in a job search mode, like interviewing companies to see where I wanted to work. My number one favorite question to ask was, I would say, if if you're interviewing me, for example, I would say, so Devin, uh, this all sounds great. What are the things that you would need to have seen me do uh, if, if you were to hire me for this job in three to five years, whatever it be, looking back, what are the things that you would have need to have seen me do to have made you realize that you made the right decision in hiring me? Right. Just tell them to describe to you their perfect employee, basically. It gives you a perfect roadmap if you do get hired of exactly how to retain your job and do it well. And it also just immediately frames it such that they're, they're already thinking they've hired you. Yep, another you know. another big one is ask what the biggest task you can take off the person interviewing you's plate is. So that's one thing that I found is like, what's the task that needs most help in this office or what task is like taking up the most of your time that you could delegate? Mm-hmm. And then they give you that, they think about that for, huh, you know. Responding to emails is really taking a lot of time, you know, front facing work, having to deal with the customers coming and taking a lot of time, having to do this Excel sheet takes a lot of time. And then whatever it is, just be an expert. In that. I'm fantastic with Excel sheets. Sure. I'd happily take that off your plate if it would give you a little extra time, because no matter how much time you can possibly put into your manager, freeing up their time is actually the most valuable thing you can That's do. That's why they're looking to hire someone. Exactly. And not everyone realizes why they need to hire someone. A lot of people, I think, realize that they need to hire someone, but not exactly why. What for? Exactly. Someone in their life may have told them, you need to hire someone. Like you're you're putting too much on yourself and you're kind of bottlenecking yourself here. You need to hire, you, you're at that point. And they might realize internally that they need to hire someone, but they might not even know why. Or, or what to do with that person, right? Yeah. Exactly. I would say, you know, I evaluate, you know, you, me, and Andy, respectively, and the three of us all are in positions where we need people working under us in our companies, but for very different things and mm-hmm. very different reasons and very different positions. And even like, you know, where we may, one of us may have a media company or, and then you need a media person or one of us may have a sales company, but one, Andy needs a salesperson. You know what I mean? It's almost, you have to find people to cover the things that you're weak in. Um, as much as anything when you're hiring. And I think the best way, of, I guess, if you're the person being interviewed, the best way that you can cover your <coughs> boss's weaknesses or you can cover the business's weaknesses, therefore making yourself more valuable, is to take things off people above you's plate. Find the things that take a ton of time for them and then execute on those. And I think that's, you go into an interview like that, if someone comes in and asks me how they could take time off my plate, I give them a list and they tell me how they're going to do it, I'm hiring them. <laughs> Guaranteed. Absolutely. You want a job with me? Come and do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you're listening, that's how to get a job with this guy. Yep, you want solar. The, come and tell me how you can take stuff off my plate. <laughs> I'll hire you immediately. Well, I love that. Um, is there anything else that you can think of that you really wanted to make sure to share with the audience here? We've uh, kind of covered the things that we set out to cover. Uh, you know, no, nothing terribly specific. If you haven't looked into solar yet and you need, look, and you're interested in green energy, interested in saving money on your electricity bill, talk to a solar representative or specialist. Most people don't go solar just because they're ignorant of how the product works. It is no cost up front, government incentivized, and saves you tons and tons of money on ever increasing electricity bills. So I think that'll be my last point. There you go. And I will provide all applicable info on how to find Devin through all of his various channels. Links and, down here somewhere? Yep. In the uh, in the description, if you're watching on YouTube or the audio or the show notes, if you're listening on audio, 
other than that, uh, I've asked you my repeat questions a few times already, so we've kind of covered that. Thank you again so much for being on again, Devin. Absolutely. Love being on Profession Session. Thank you so much for having me, Brody, and I hope to see you guys again soon. Absolutely. You've been watching Profession Session. I've been your host, Brody Vinson. My guest has been Devin Roberts, and we're going to go ahead and tune out there. Thanks so much for tuning into Profession Session. I'm your host, Brody Vinson. Stay tuned for new episodes every week and short clips of deep dives into specific topics that I put out on different social media channels. We can be found on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, all major podcast platforms. You can find my guest in the details of this video or podcast. And if you happen to know a young standout business owner, professional, or entrepreneur that you would think would be a good fit for Profession Session, DM me or get in contact with me anywhere and just let me know and they could be the next to tell their story here until next time again this has been profession session stay focused stay hustling and stay networking